Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of God for the people of God. And answering them, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And turning aside one to his field, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding feast was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who was not dressed in a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, the experience with little kids, uh, one of the experiences you have with little kids, uh, this often happens with parents, is they're refusing to do something that you know they will really enjoy. Had a number of experiences like this over the summer where we plan things for, for particularly our younger kids. We know they're going to love it, but when it comes to it, they don't want to do it. The idea is we know you're going to enjoy this, but yet they're kicking and screaming uh, not wanting to do that, and you keep thinking, you're going to love this when we get here, truly, you really are. <laughs> well, adults often do this too, I've thought, as I've reflected on this, is I basically do the same thing, but the tantrums are uh, less evident, perhaps. We have kind of our adult tantrums to us, and I've been thinking on this, and it's sort of an analogy of how God is with us. He has things that we know uh, are good for us, that he has planned for us, he knows they're good for us, and yet often we are kicking and screaming when he offers them to us. I think this helps us explain a kind of Christian view of judgment. If you think about it and the culture in which we live, uh, many times if you ask someone why they're not a Christian or what they think of Christianity, they think, oh, it's too bigoted for me. There's all that judgment. Um, I just, you know, I can't, can't, uh, can't deal with that. It's interesting that in the ancient world, you know, none of the Romans, the Roman world, when Christians were going out, spreading the gospel, did they say, oh, there's too much judgment. They, they sort of, judgment was a part of everybody's sort of worldview. So it wasn't that Christianity was unique, it actually was the opposite. So you're, you're too gracious, you're too wide, too compassionate about things. But maybe it gives us a sense of our own Christian view of judgment. That God's judgment is always a sort of last resort. That God offers over and over again his grace. His grace is prior his grace is greater, yet ultimately God still has judgment. He often ha he has, in the end, 
a sort of point of no return. This is what relates to our parable here today. It's a parable about God's grace, his overabounding grace, but also with a warning not to spurn it. Uh, I've entitled, I had a couple of different ideas for titles you see on the outline. One of my ideas was party or die, but I thought maybe that's too much. <laughs> Join the party or else. Uh, I once had a pastoral mentor preaching through Ecclesiastes, and I, he had a, a best title I've ever heard. Uh, one of his titles is uh, Ecclesiastes, so much, you're probably not having enough fun. So I've always wanted, I wanted a title like that. But title, in other words, is just join the party. There's a party going on. There's a celebration that God is throwing. Will you join it? Or will you kick and scream? Will you see that this joy is for your good? Well, as we get into this, let's think a little bit about the context of the passage today, just reminding ourselves where we've been in this summer series. Jesus has entered Jerusalem by this point in Matthew. He's come in Palm Sunday. Uh, there's great fanfare as he comes in, riding on a donkey in the streets of Jerusalem. He's already stirred up a lot of controversy. One of the first things he does is make a beeline for the temple. He says he comes and he looks at it. He receives praise from the infants, from those around him. That's caused controversy among the Jewish leaders. But then the next thing that Jesus does is clear and cleanse the temple, uh, driving out everyone there, overturning the money changers. And the first thing that these Jewish leaders want to know is, where did you get the authority to do this? Who do you think you are? So we have all of this question about Jesus' authority. Who are you that you can do these things? And in response, as Jesus is often wont to do, he doesn't give quite a straight answer. He says, well, I'll tell you a few parables. And you can see where Jesus responds about his authority with these parables. Larry last week looked at the uh, two parables that are kind of in a string of three. There's the parable of two sons, a faithful son and an unfaithful son. So this father-son relationship. Then we had a parable about tenants, a vineyard tenants. Um, it's a parable about bearing fruit. And now we have this parable of a wedding feast. It's interesting, each of these different uh, parables have several common elements. There's son relationships, father-son relationships. Uh, there's work, vineyard, and now a feast, presumably wine at this feast. All of these parables are telling a similar message, but with different perspectives. The first two are primarily about labor in the kingdom. What does it look like to labor in the kingdom? But primarily today's is, what is the joy of the kingdom? The nature of the kingdom as a kingdom of joy. So what I want us to do then is first think about how understanding this story as a story. We'll go through just what's the elements of this story, just trying to get a handle of the story itself. Then trying to get a sense of what this meant, particularly to the Jewish leaders as Jesus told us. What's the interpretation for those original hearers? And then if you look on the back, I had to go on the back of the outline today. We'll think about some application of what it means for us here at Florida Coast. Well, the basic outline of the story, it's actually pretty easy as we look at an outline. It's a story of three gracious calls and three snubs to a party. So we have three calls, three snubs as the basic outline of what's going on. The first call, first snub is verses two through three. It simply says, a king gave a wedding feast for his son. And his servants uh, sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. This is the first call, and this is the first refusal. But it's pretty generic. We don't get a lot 
of information. We get a few details though to start off with. The first detail is this isn't just a banquet, it's a royal banquet. And it's not just any royal banquet, it's a wedding celebration. So we need to get kind of all of these things together. It's a feast, it's a marriage, and it's royalty. So party, we have marriage, we have royalty going on. It combines these very important things. It's a time of celebration, it's a party with food, it's called a feast, but it's also a marriage ceremony and it's a royal event, it's political. In other words, what's about to happen in this story really kind of has layers of social customs. We often think about customs we might have about parties and invitations, but we need to add to that the fact that this is a wedding party and the fact that this is a kind of political event. It's a royal event for the land. Uh, one of the first, team, uh, first things to explain is what is meant by this business of sending servants to call those invited? Well, it was a common practice uh, in the ancient world where times and scheduling are not exactly as precise as we are. We say we're going to start at 10 o'clock on Florida coast. And we were only a few minutes off from that, so pretty close. Well, the idea in the ancient world is you often had a double invitation. First, you'd send somebody out to say, hey, there's going to be a certain event. Maybe it's a few weeks away. Maybe it's a few days away. It could be months even away. Usually just a few weeks was the general kind of rule of thing. It's coming, we have a general idea of when it's gonna be, but in the ancient world, you took a lot to kind of get all of these things together, so you gave a certain time frame, plus or minus a few days. It's often delivered in person, especially in this case, because it's a royal event. The king sends his own royal messengers for it. But as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot to get together here, particularly in the ancient world, there wasn't much preservation techniques. There's only a few ways you can do that. So if you were going to slaughter meat, which was a very expensive thing to do, basically once you start the slaughtering, you got a very limited time frame. So that's when you send out the second messengers to say, it's ready. Uh, the meat's been prepared. You need to come here. We're gonna have the feast so it can be eaten. So the second invitation comes out. It's what's called a call to ready. The messengers now say, hey, we told you about the invitation earlier, what was going to happen. Now we're saying it's ready. And in fact, in some, sometimes uh, the messengers themselves would act as sort of, um, care, you know, sort of uh, accompanying them to the very event, an invitation to travel to the event with them. Uh, the literal phrase then in verse uh, two, it says the king's servants are to call the called. It's actually the same word, just repeat, the call, those who had already been called. So there's already a call that's gone out. Now he's saying, call the called, bring them to the wedding feast. But the second half of the verse obviously tells us the result. He says, says simply, they would not come or literally they were not willing. They were not wanting to come. They simply, didn't want to. Already we need to understand that this isn't something like deciding whether to go to a party today where you kind of look and you think, well, do I want to go? Do I check my schedule on this? The ancient cultures were much more of an honor shame society. So there's a lot riding on invitations and how you're to respond to them. It might be closer to something that if you had a wedding of a family member, you're probably not thinking, do I want to go? Well, you probably are thinking, do I want to go to this or not? But you probably need to go because it's a family, you're expected. But even that isn't quite the same. I was trying to think about a closer analogy, perhaps an analogy, something like this, would be if you were a US Senator 
and the presidential inauguration or State of the Union was about to happen, you have an obligation to be there, a political obligation to be there. A wedding feast for the royal son is actually considered something like an inauguration or succession. Uh, the king upon this royal son's marriage is starting to come into his own and into his throne. So for nobles of a kingdom, uh, their presence at a royal wedding uh, would have been a kind of test of allegiance. It's a test of allegiance to the king, but also now a test of allegiance to the son. Okay, you've been loyal to me as king. My son's the one who's next on the throne. You better come to his wedding. So not to show up to that, we need to see, is actually kind of a tantamount to rebellion. And everybody would have known that too. If you refused an invitation like that, you knew that you were basically starting a revolution. You're publicly flouting the king's authority for everyone to see. So the fact that the king doesn't do anything right away, we have, he sent an invitation, they didn't come. And the fact is he sends another invitation is already pretty amazing. He's being extremely gracious. He sends the call to ready. Again, he says, send other servants. And we get a little more information about the urgency of it. He says, hey, here's all the meat. It's a lot of meat, by the way, that he has prepared for this. He says the animals are slaughtered. They're probably now getting cooked. They're saying, hey, roasting time is here. You need to come to the wedding. So we're getting a little escalation, a little more urgency. Please, you need to come to the wedding. But again, we get a snub. And just as there's more to the second invitation, we actually get more about the second refusal. The people who had been first invited were told, paid no attention. The second royal messengers uh, don't even get a notice from them. They're not even paying attention to them. They turn aside, this will be a key phrase, and they turn aside, they go to their fields and their businesses. That's the first description, but things get ramped up even more. Continuing to escalate in the story, says the rest of them, these invitees, seized the king's servants, they treated them shamefully, and killed them. It's like, okay, we're past basic etiquette now. We've now moved way beyond just sort of tantamount to rebellion as it's now basically in force. This is treason. They're going through with it. Many laws in the ancient world are looking up any kind of way of mistreating royal emissaries, official royal emissaries already had the death penalty. So you know what's coming if you're going to do this. You better be ready for what's king. So the king's response is pretty expected. He puts down rebellion. It may seem extravagant to us, but he's simply putting down what is already sort of ramped up into force with this rebellion. We might seem a little bit extravagant that we learn the king burns the entire city, but we're finding out here about this king that he's simultaneously very gracious and also very exacting. He will um, respond with justice. What does stretch the limits of this story's realism, I think, though, is in verse 8. And Larry's talked about this before with a lot of these parables. It's kind of stretching the limits of reality and how they tell it, sort of exaggerating or bringing about things that are not necessarily plausible to happen. But we actually now find out that the wedding feast is still on hold. <laughs> that call to ready, apparently, is still going on. So however long it took to slaughter these animals, they're roasting. And however long it took to lay siege to an entire city and burn it, the American feast is still actually in ready stage. So the king decides to recoup a bit of his honor. He really wants guests 
at his son's wedding. This is a way to honor his son, make sure the wedding party has attendees. So he sends the word to the servants. So the problem with those earlier invitees is that they were not worthy. It's interesting. It's not that they weren't worthy because they weren't as nobles, which perhaps they were. It's that they weren't worthy because they didn't see the king's invitation as itself being worthy. It was their response to that that has shown that they weren't worthy of this honor that the king was bestowing on them and participating in this royal wedding feast. Uh, their worthiness wasn't the fact, again, about their high status, but their action to this. What's interesting is the king follows this up by simply inviting everyone. It's kind of interesting. He says they weren't worthy, so let's just invite anybody. Go to the main roads, he says, and invite as many as you find. Now, this phrase, main roads, it could be highways or byways, public intersections. It's interesting people have tried to figure out what this might kind of indicate. It does seem like it could be commoners now or are extended to. We don't have sort of city, like landed people, but people who are simply out and about. And he's giving this invitation really to anyone, anyone with a chance to share in the royal feast of his son. Well, the final description of this third call tells us that many people really were found. It was filled, both bad and good. It's filled now full of guests. This seems like a good place to end this parable, be a nice ending on a high note, but actually now we have a third snub to this third call. We're told the king comes into the feast while it is happening. So we're at the feast, at this joyous occasion. It says that the king visits the feast, and this is going to be an interesting word as well. He comes to the feast, he visits the feast to look in, to inspect what's going on. And what does he find? He finds one man not dressed in the clothes of a, a wedding. Literally, that's what it says, not dressed in the clothes of a wedding. So what is this clothes of a wedding that this man isn't wearing. It could be a couple of different things. On the one hand, it might just be that he's wearing an outfit that isn't very appropriate for a wedding. He came in his swimsuit. He came in sandals and shorts, maybe a jogging outfit. Could be that his clothes simply aren't clean. In other words, he's just really dirty. Some scholars have shown that in some cases, in some Jewish weddings, we have an example of hosts actually providing a kind of robe itself. This isn't, we don't have a lot of evidence for it, so we need to be careful that that, we know that that's going on, but there does seem to have happened at times where a host would provide sort of the, the outer garment that would be worn in a, in a special occasion. But even if it's just clothes not befitting a wedding, looking into this, basically most peasants would have had one set of clothing, even if they weren't particularly wealthy, usually had one set of a clothing for special occasions, which would have occurred. And the idea is you had one set of clothing and you didn't wear it. The point is this almost was a worse snub to come not being prepared than it would have been not to come at a call. And the king's question of the man is, is kind of gracious itself. Look, he, he starts off with friend. Friend. He says, was there some kind of misunderstanding? That's basically what he's asking. Some translations have it as how did you get in? Like, how did you slip past the guards? But it's actually probably better translated, why? How is it that you came here without wedding clothes? At least, did you misunderstand what was going on? And he actually gives him a chance to explain. You can almost see it as a situation where a man said, I just, 
I didn't understand him. Oh, it's a royal wedding feast. I thought it was, you know, but he doesn't say anything. It says he is speechless. The political circumstances of this event have political ramifications. It's dishonor to the ruler of the land, the refusal to see the fact that the fact that he was even there was a great honor. It was demanding his best. It was a refusal to share in the king's joy in this event. The man is cast out of the wedding feast to outside of the event. No doubt, you can kind of visualize the scene for a second that the, the king, no doubt, spared no expense on candles, which are very expensive, and lanterns around. You could think of the feast hall as being lit up, ready for joy. It says, take him to the outside. It's called the outer darkness where it's night. It says, just put him out of this. We are going to have joy in here. We're going to celebrate this occasion with all that we have that's our best. Spare no expense. He's to be put out. It's a gracious invitation, but unfortunately we have three snubs to this king's invitation to joy. Now, my guess is that many of you can probably see already all kinds of applications to us as we think about God's character and our life and Christian life. But I want us to think, first of all, about the original context of Jesus giving this story. I think as we often do with Jesus' parables, and really we kind of do this with the Bible itself, we kind of imagine that it's speaking directly to us, directly to our time, sort of skipping over the fact that Jesus was actually talking to a particular uh, audience here in this doesn't mean that it's not for our edification. It is. Scripture speaks to us for our instruction, but it isn't always speaking directly to us. Look at verse 1 of this story. Not all translations show this, but it starts off with answering them. Well, answering who? If you flip to the chapter before, this is Jesus talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders of Jerusalem. He is continuing the conversation is what that word means. He's speaking to them in the same ways that he just spoke the parables. This is an answer to their story, to this conversation. We should remember, too, the purpose of the parables. Why did Jesus speak parables? Was it primarily for later on? No, it says Jesus spoke the parables to fulfill in his day what Isaiah had said about Israel. So that needs to be in our mind as we think about what does this mean for those heard it. When Jesus ends the story, for example, saying, many are called and few are chosen, who's he talking to? He's speaking to the Jewish leaders, just as he had with the other two parables. In other words, this parable is about Jesus' own ministry, then and there. This is a parable about what he's doing. This is a parable about the effect of Jesus' ministry in the whole long story of God's plan. In other words, I told before when we looked at parables, Jesus is the climax to the parables. It's not sort of a side note to the parables. It's really about us. Jesus is the climactic part of this parable. But what that means, I think, is that the beginning part of the story is actually pulling from before Jesus. It's reaching back into the early story where Jesus is the climax. And what is that the story of? It's the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of God's dealings with his people, Israel, and how Jesus brings that to its fulfillment. So there's a lot of Old Testament background to help with this. You know, where do we get the imagery of a wedding, of marriage. It's from the very start of Israel as a nation. The Old Testament, you might remember, depicts God's rescue of uh, Israel from Egypt as kind of winning a bride for himself. Just as you might think, who, who wins someone from another, he wins a bride to himself, woos a bride to himself. The prophets often speak about this. You can think of the prophet Hosea, who has to visually depict Israel as an unfaithful bride. 
Think of Ezekiel 16, another kind of graphic illustration, but God rescued Israel. He wooed her to himself in the wilderness. In fact, it's portraying Mount Sinai there as a kind of wedding ceremony. God gathered his people. There's a covenant ceremony. Remember that Israel says, we will do this. It's kind of like the I do of a wedding ceremony. It's a covenant ceremony. The Lord also built a newlywed house for his bride, as often that would happen in Jewish custom. So that's the idea of the tabernacle, a wedding tent where they're going to meet together. Later, the temple becomes this kind of trysting place where God meets with his bride. The Lord is always having to win her back to himself to renew this covenant relationship. But another image the Old Testament uses, and I know this is kind of weird to switch from bride to son being in this, but this is what the Bible does, overlaps images. But Israel is also spoken of as God's son. Think about the first words that Moses said to Pharaoh. He said, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my people go. Israel is God's heir, a kind of royal heir. God's the king. Israel is the heir, in a sense, to the throne, going to rule with the Lord. Later on in the Old Testament, it's not only the whole people that are this, but it gets kind of specially focused on the king of Israel himself. Second Samuel 7, you can look up these later. The Lord appears to David and gives David a great promise. He says, I'm going to raise up an offspring after you from your own body. I'm going to establish his reign on the throne. He's going to build a house for me. And it says this, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. David apparently knew this very much by heart because we find a scene on his deathbed as he's speaking to his son Solomon. This is from 1 Chronicles 28. He says, Solomon, the Lord said to me that it is your son Solomon who will build my house and my court, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. It's interesting that when the Jewish rabbis told parables of the kingdom, which they told parables of the kingdom just like Jesus, they told one parable of a coming Messiah king who would almost marry Israel and lead her like a husband. You can think of Psalm 45 speaks in these kinds of ways, or even Song of Solomon, and they have some of this allegory of the king and Israel, the king leading the people as a husband leads a bride and wife. We also have another image for us here going on. The idea of festivals and feastings is rooted deep in the Old Testament. See, when God rescued his bride, when he got his son ready to be the heir, he feeds his people. And so at Mount Sinai, we have this covenant feast that seals the covenant with his people. The Passover itself was kind of seen as a foundational feast of God's people. So they reenacted these feasts. Remember, God gave them many feasts throughout the year. Uh, think about the phrase in Deuteronomy. It's repeated over and over again. You are to eat and drink before the Lord your God. Eat and drink with joy in his presence. So feasting before him. And again, by that time, by the time of Jesus, uh, we already have the Jews talking about something called the Messianic Banquet. The idea is that when the Messiah King would come, the last King, the anointed King, would sort of make everything right, that there would be a great feast that all the righteous would share. It actually shows up a number of times in the Gospels when people ask about Jesus and eating bread in the kingdom, for example. Well, if we combine all of these th things together, we get something like the picture of this parable. The Lord is telling his people... That he is planning a great royal wedding feast. 
So Yahweh is inviting his people Israel to share in his festivity of his son. And he's inviting them to this. You think about the temple worship. He's inviting them to rejoice, as we heard, in his presence, to eat and drink with him. But it says they reject this. They turn aside. They do different kinds of snub. And we can kind of read the stages of Israel's story in this. Maybe the first invitation is primarily an invitation of unwillingness. They don't want to. Think about the phrase about Israel's that they have uh, stubborn hearts and stiff necks. They don't want to go along with what God is doing. It says, then he appoints, he sends prophets. What does he call his prophets? His servants, his royal servants. Think about what happened to them. Jeremiah is beaten, put in stocks, thrown into a pit. Isaiah sawn in half. Zechariah killed at the altar in the temple. So the king's burning of the city may point to one of the most climactic events in the Old Testament that Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city, burnt it to the ground. And the Lord says, Nebuchadnezzar was my agent. He was my instrument. I was doing this to my own people for the ways that they had rejected the invitation I had brought them. So think about that phrase, turning aside. It says these people turned aside. They turned away. And often a phrase in the prophets, they turned away from the Lord to their own past. We might see then Jesus' ministry as taking place in verse 8. Look at that. So we have another sending out. And how is this sending out? It says, well, the son, when Jesus describes his own ministry, one of the phrases he says is the son of man came eating and drinking. See, John came fasting, he tells the Pharisees, and you didn't fast. The Son of Man came feasting, and you didn't feast with him. You weren't sort of with the things of what was going on. You didn't join in in either parts of this. Jesus came to the common people. He dined with them. Think about all the meals in the Gospels where Jesus is meeting with people, speaking to them. Uh, John the Baptist says that he was a friend of the groom, the best man. But the wedding is just around the corner. And John says, that's why I fast. And Jesus says, that's why I feast. The bridegroom is here. And so they feast. Jesus himself said that since the time of John, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. And everybody is forcing into it. Think about that phrase where everybody's filling up the wedding hall and the feast. Everybody's seeming to know what's Something's going on. Let's sort of join the crowd. What's going on here? The crowd's following Jesus. But the question is, what's going to happen when the kingdom comes? In the chapter just before this parable, Jesus is on the main road to Jerusalem, the highway to Zion. And what happens? Well, he picks up a bunch of people. In fact, we get lame and the blind following him. He's inviting them together. But notice, when Jesus gets to the house, you might call it the wedding hall, the temple. What does he find? He finds what he says, a den of brigands. Brigands are revolutionaries, rebellious people who are plotting against the king. It says Jesus, Jesus comes to the temple to look in on it, to look in on this kind of sacrificial feast. But what does he do? He drives out from the king's court the chief priests, the elders, those who are planning to seize him and kill him. It's Jesus who tells the Jewish leaders that they didn't recognize the time of your visitation. Same language of the king who comes to visit his guests in the wedding hall. Jesus is the representation of the king. He's the eternal son of the father. So it's as if the father himself is coming to look in on this. So we might ask, what then of the refusal of this invitation? It's interesting that this man in the parable, it says, is left speechless. 
and speechless, the only other time that Matthew uses that word is in the same chapter when it says the Sadducees were left speechless after Jesus' response to them. By the end of chapter 222, the last verses, it says everybody is silent, speechless before him. Jesus came to give them a chance to explain themselves, but they simply gnashed their teeth at him. You might remember a story earlier in Matthew about a Gentile centurion. This is a Gentile, but he has great faith and says, Jesus is astonished at this. And he says, with no one in Israel have I seen such faith. And then he says these words. He says, many are going to come and recline at table in the kingdom from the east and the west, from the north and the south. But he says, the sons of the kingdom, those who are already in a sense in the kingdom, you yourselves, you will see yourselves cast out into outer darkness and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see all of this together? It's explaining to Jesus, Jesus explaining to them why the sons of the kingdom haven't actually participated in the wedding feast. They haven't come in the right way and they're going to be cast out. The references to those who have been previously called, they're like the tenants of the vineyard. Jesus is gonna take away the kingdom and give it to another. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the Jewish leaders, many are called, but few are chosen. It's what he had just said in this earlier parable. Tax collectors, the prostitutes, they're getting into the kingdom ahead of you. I think that's how we can get the very specific meaning of what's meant by Jesus' parable. But obviously the parable has a lot to say to us, a continuing relevance to us. We can kind of see in the story that there's another time that Jerusalem actually gets destroyed and burnt to the ground. And Jesus predicts this as well, exactly 40 years from his ministry, kind of exact generation, biblical generation, uh, the Romans are going to come and destroy the city. And what happens after that? Well, the gospel is about to get out. In fact, how is it going to get out? It's going to follow the main roads and highways of Rome. It's going to get out to the ends of the earth. And it's still going out. Beloved, we are in the wedding feast right now. So the wedding has come. You can think about the wedding in some ways like this. The veil of the temple at Jesus' death. What happens to a veil? Veil is the same word in ancient in, in the ancient world, the same as us. The veil of a bride, the veil of the temple is removed, so this wedding might take place. The bride is wed to the king, but there's in a sense more bride to come. There's the bride being formed, the vows have been made, but we still await the consummation. We're between the wedding and between the full yet to come. Already here, still not yet. So the idea is the wedding feast is going on, keep bringing people to the party. In the final book of the Bible, John sees a revelation of a great city. You might remember this from Revelation. It's a great city that we're told, the city where the Lord was crucified. It's a city that had become drunk on the blood of the prophets and the martyrs and the saints, we're told. And he sees the fall. And there's actually a great triumph of, of, of jubilation at the fall of this city by the saints, that this the city that had done all of this damage has now fallen, and now in a sense the gospel can go out. And John hears a shout after that. It says he hears a shout, and this is what he hears, that the Lord reigns, and the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, for the bride has made herself ready. And how is she ready? It says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
impure. So we have already here this idea of wedding garments. It says the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel tells John, blessed are all those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved, this passage tells us so much about the kingdom. It tells us that the kingdom is now. Because the Son reigns at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended on high. And it's teaching us about this. It's teaching the kingdom is a kingdom of marriage, of love. That is, God's love is what has set everything in the world on its course. The Son, the Son is eternally loved of the Father. The Father loves His Son. And He wants to honor His Son. So He says, come share in my love for my Son. Come share in this feast. Christ laid down his life for his bride, showing that his love is stronger than death. Quote Song of Solomon. And we have a joyous feast. Beloved, Christian life is not about sorrow itself. Jesus knows that there's sorrow, knows that there's suffering in the Christian life, but it's not for the sake of suffering. He says, it's for joy. I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Christian life is one that should be characterized by the joy of the Father for His Son. The kingdom is a gracious invitation. It's a gracious invitation because we've already snubbed the invitation plenty of times, and yet the Father says, come, come again. The idea is the only thing that's keeping you from coming is you, not me. Come as you are, because the kingdom is a kingdom of provision as well. But the kingdom is about the father wanting to honor his son. So that does mean we need to bow the knee. We need to kiss the son. It's about the father saying, honor my son as part of the joy I have. And we also again see that the God has provided us with a way to come in to the wedding feast. That there's clothes for us. We're clothed in Christ is the New Testament uh, statement over and over again. Put on Christ as you would a garment and come into my presence. And by that, we can begin to empower us, be empowered to do the righteous deeds of the saints. Now is the day of salvation. You know, it's interesting to read this parable kind of in succession. See if you can think with me about this. We have a parable of two sons, and it's primarily about the unfaithful son that is the Pharisees unwilling to come in well then we have another parable about the son no longer the pharisees but a good son but a son who is killed tragically and what do we have in the third parable the son's back that's almost like the son of that previous parable who died is resurrected and what is the son this resurrected son doing in the third parable well he's getting married he has a bride he is full of joy and he's making invitation. The murdered son now has a feast at the ready. He says, come, join the party. Don't come kicking and screaming. Don't come in the wrong way, thinking you can bring your own kind of clothes in. He says, I've got something for you. Have clean clothes. Come in in this way. Come in repentance. Come acknowledging that you don't belong here, but the Father has laid this out for you. And that's our invitation today, that we would come, that we'd join the party, get the kingdom ongoing from now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Father, we give you thanks that you sent your Son 
a son who was killed at the hands of sinners like us, but a son you raised from the dead and now shares his life with the bride he died for. So, Father, we ask that we would accept your call now and every day to feast with your son, that we might share his joy, that we might know the joy of the kingdom, that we might turn from our sin and know your love and be with your people. Father, we ask this, even as we come, that we might bring forth this invitation to others as well, so that they might know your glory, the Father of joy, and the Son whom you honor. We ask this in his name. Amen.